0: Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Hey, welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. I want to thank you guys for joining us again. Before we jump into today's content, let me remind you of all the things going on over at uh, chrismoles.org. In particular, is uh, PeaceWorks University. If you've not checked out PeaceWorks University, it's our online membership site, and it contains a vault of all of my past teachings, along with uh, toolbox items that are helpful in ministry, uh, the online community where you can interact with other members, and Uh, masterclasses, which are my favorite. And uh, masterclasses feature myself and uh, an expert in the field talking about a topic. And you're going to get kind of a taste of that today as i transition to today's content. Uh, As I have a friend with me today, we're going to have a conversation. So I want to welcome to the PeaceWorks podcast, Sydney Millage. Sydney is a counselor and advocate, and she's the author of the book Sanctuary. Hope and Help for Victims of Domestic Abuse. and This book is, in particular, written for biblical counselors who are going to be working with victims of domestic abuse, and it's something that you really should check out and absolutely get on your shelf. Sydney, thank you for joining us today on the PeaceWorks podcast.
1: Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, one of the things we wanted to talk about today, guys, and uh, have you listen in on, is something we get tons of questions about uh, at at PeaceWorks, and it's about the uh, doctrinal position of complementarity and how it presents itself in counseling, in particular. So I'm going to throw this out there. I've got a couple of questions listed out, Sydney, but uh, let me ask you: is what, what is that like? What's the balancing act like of counseling from a complementarian perspective, a gender role perspective, and also being a, a domestic violence advocate? What are some of the tensions that maybe you experience uh, in your world working with victims?
1: I would, the most difficult thing I would say is just um, the response of men Obviously, if, if you're in a church that understands and practices complementarian roles, then I, as a woman counselor, am not in a position to have authority or uh, to speak into the lives of either our pastors, our leadership, our men um, in, in a way that crosses that line of how do I say there's that doctrinal line of being a leadership being in leadership making those decisions and then when I as a woman see things or I'm hearing things that need attention then it does create that tension of how do I present this and what is their response and then how am I going to react or respond to their response you know it's kind of that back and forth it's not just that full steam ahead for myself as a counselor or for the victim. She is dependent on her leadership as well. When you're talking about the church situation.
0: You know, I hadn't even like that, that had not crossed my mind with the discussion today because I was thinking more from a victim perspective or a perpetrator perspective, but that's a really interesting <clears throat> piece to the puzzle when a church ecclesiologically. So those of you listening in that the way the church is governed, if the church is a, church that's governed from a complementarian perspective, there could be a lot of blind spots to leaders who haven't worked in this field before, and Sydney brings up an interesting point, navigating leadership structures, and I had not thought about that, obviously, being a man. I just come right in, and I get some kind of privilege, so what are maybe some of the things that, from, from a female perspective, we as leaders can learn? About handling domestic abuse cases, because from my perspective real quick, I think advocate voices, female voices are essential. I, I just think we'll miss the whole like we'll we'll mess it up if we don't have female voices. What are some of the encouragements we can give the churches to i don't want to say allow, but just accept the fact that female voices are necessary
1: i you're exactly right, Chris that is a huge blind spot i I get this whole piece um, in the back of my mind from of, I, I'm sure pastors' voices, whether it's on the radio or, you know, different places I've picked up, and this is what I hear as a woman, is that Adam and Abraham were both confronted by God and sinned because they quote, listened to their wives.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: So, so then you get this whole piece of, okay, so if men are taking that and grabbing that, then they're not stopping to listen to women. And it's a whole different situation than when you had those men abdicating responsibility and making moral decisions based on their wife's desires. That's a whole different set of circumstances than when you have women in the church who are presenting needs, and who are presenting issues that need attention. Um, so it's just, it's a matter of the men being sensitive and in tune. It's that whole First Peter 3, yeah. verse 7 of living in an understanding way. And, and if it's not happening in our churches and among our leadership, it's certainly not happening in our homes, or most likely.
0: That's a, to me, that's kind of a terrifying thought. And I see what you're saying. I mean, I've seen this happen among leaders who have a, or lack, I should say, lack a well-nuanced theology of responsibility. And what you've just laid out is um, a male leader, an individual in a pastoral position, ends up victim blaming, right? Rather than holding perpetrators responsible, In large part, because of a a lack of a nuanced theology, you know, blaming Eve or blaming Sarah, right, rather than holding Abraham and Adam accountable for their decisions. No wonder we end up with rape victims who are blamed for immodesty or, you know, being drunk or time, place, and manner rather than individuals being held accountable.
1: And I missed most of that because you froze, Chris. I'm really sorry. Oh, no.
0: Oh, no. Dun, dun, dun. But I'm sure
1: it was good. It was probably (laughs) really, really good.
0: I'm sure it was brilliant. We're just going to hope that the recording caught that. And if you're listening to the podcast and you're like, what happened? I don't know what happened. The internet froze and um, Cindy did not hear anything I just said. But I will, I will reiterate that I think it is tragic um, that individuals um, take that position that end up blaming victims rather than holding perpetrators accountable because of some lack of theological nuance that says um, Eve or Sarah was responsible for their husband's sin. Did you catch that, that one or did I freeze up again?
1: You froze up again. When you slow down, I hear you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to disconnect yeah. some devices on my end. I'm being told in the chat that everything's working fine.
1: Oh, beautiful. All right. Well, yeah. that sounds good to me. So, yeah. So <laughs> if, if men aren't listening, they're missing a lot. If they're not available and uh, yeah. willing to hear what's going on.
0: That's a, that might be a good transition to this question, Sydney, as you've worked with so many victims over the years. What, what questions regarding gender roles are you seeing coming up in domestic abuse counseling? Um, coming from complementarian circles, working with women, what are some of the questions that you see most frequently coming up in your work with victims? Did I lose you again?
1: You did lose me again. And I'm checking <laughs> on my end, make sure I've got good internet. I think I'm good. Sorry. Okay. Ask it again. Sorry, Chris.
0: All right. No problem. I'm clean as a whistle on my end. Um, you guys in the chat, let me know what you guys are seeing. And we'll just keep doing our best. <laughs> All
1: right. Sounds good. So, so you're asking about what, questions.
0: Yeah, what questions regarding gender roles do you see coming up with victims?
1: Mission. You know, what does biblical submission look like and what is my job as, as it relates to being a wife? And Chris, I can honestly say of the many women I've, I've met with, and I've been hyper aware of this for like the last six years, but it's always, you know, been there. Um, The women I meet with don't want to harm their husbands. They don't want anything unbiblical. They're really desiring to please God. And so with the whole sense of what happens in a an abusive situation they're feeling the weight they're feeling like they're at fault and it's all on them um and so really it's a sense of wanting to live in submission or wanting to please god and their husband and that is generally the crux of the gender debate as it as it relates to marriage
0: i think that's like to me, that's super important because I hear, I hear so often from leaders that the, um, the victim, generally speaking, in our cases are angry or bitter or you know any number of descriptive terms. And I don't find that to be the case initially. Like to me, mm-hmm. I find what you're describing to be the initial response. I want to please God. Mm-hmm. And inadvertently, I think we as leaders are putting barriers in place to that. Because we're responding with biblical submission as if we're dealing with normal marital conflict rather than understanding power, control, and coercion. And it ends up putting victims in more danger, more frustration, greater stress, and no wonder um, those cries become louder or more intense or more passionate because the, we're, we're swinging or we're shooting at the wrong target. So do you see that happening over time that when gender roles become overemphasized without proper intervention that it just produces more stress and harm to the victim long-term?
1: Absolutely. And um, I mentioned before we went on that when I was an undergraduate, which was 30 years ago, scary thought, um, I remember them saying that you're not going to be able to identify an abusive individual, right? You, it's just not uh, something that we see in the demographics. The way you will identify someone who is abusive is if they have rigid role stereotypes. And if there's a rigidity there and they're unwilling to move on those, then you're going to find you have some power plays and some, some issues in that way. What I do find is that when women get to a safe place, and then they look back on the situation. They look back on how they sinned. They do get angry, and there is often a sense of bitterness we have to work through, and of of being wronged and sinned against, not only by a husband, but often by a community. Right. And and then that's where churches get defensive, and uh, and then they start start to hammer more blame or more fault on a victim, but that's not where she started. That's not where the situation began.
0: So perhaps if if the church is going to be the safest place on the planet, I'm guessing it needs to start with well-informed leaders who have a more nuanced theology of responsibility, who understand the concepts of oppression, who are willing to intervene early with something other than, right, doubling down or re-emphasizing mm-hmm. coercion, power, and control. And so if you're a leader listening in, we, we appeal to you because we've seen it too often. And too many times churches, institutions, and ministries respond to abuse reactively rather than preventatively. And in the reaction, uh, they can do uh, in, any number of responses from super healthy, high repentance, to hybrids of blame shifting and responsibility to completely blaming victims. So it is up to us as leaders to be informed and educated on um, on how our responses are affecting victims for sure.
1: And Chris, can I say it's not just the education, that's really helpful and it's extremely important in this area because it's so unknown and it's um, so difficult to discern, but I think one of the biggest pieces of church leadership that has been a blessing to me is approachability. If your pastors and your leadership and the men in your body are approachable and, and humble, then you can get a long way down the road of addressing this problem. And it will unveil itself so easily if you just stop and listen. And, and and if we're more on track with loving people in our congregations than being right. When you go down that whole path of having to be right and having to put this in black and white and being on one side of the fence or the other, um, you're, you're in a dangerous place because there you're playing Pharisee. And that's not where Jesus was.
0: That's a powerful word to any of the leaders that are listening. I have seen in, in my years of ministry, and of course, I, I mean, I've, I've failed a lot of ways ministry-wise too, but I've seen pastoral ministry just take a huge shift uh, from a, a practice of service or an assumption of service to a performing art. That mm-hmm. pastoral ministry is much more of a performing art, meaning it's a stage presence, it's charisma, it's preaching. And I've even had this conversation so many times. And so I just want to relay this to the leaders that might be listening. Leaders who love to preach and hate to shepherd Mm. as if those are two separate callings. And I just want to encourage you. I think that the people, the leaders that Sydney's talking about, my experience has been that these leaders are shepherds who minister the word in a multiplicity of ways, private, public, interpersonally, And many of our leaders who are, um, for lack of a better word, paid speakers, and I hate to say it that way, or CEOs or giant executives, we're missing the boat. If you're listening and you're a leader and you've neglected shepherding the ministry, I want to encourage you to get your hands dirty because that's, to me, those are the leaders that are making a difference because they are approachable. They're accustomed to human interaction. They're and they understand depravity and fragility. Am I oversimplifying it, Sydney, or, or are you on board with that too?
1: No, I, I totally agree. And I think another thing that stays hidden that maybe doesn't come to the surface as we talk about this and just the the blind, uh, blind spot that this is in many of our churches, I think about uh, King David, and you refer to this often in his sin against Bathsheba. Um, there's that whole piece of exercising power and control, but then how that rolled in over into his inability and his unwillingness to address it when it happened in his own home with Amnon and Tamar. So if we have leadership and men and pastors and shepherds who perhaps struggle in this area themselves and with their own responses to their wives or women, then they tend to err on the side of doing nothing versus addressing it. And so it it really begins with the individual as an individual in my own heart, I need to address what's going on and what my struggles are. And that's where that humility begins. And that's how that approachability happens. It happens as I open myself up to the word of God and then to the people of God. And then I, as a leader become a place for people to bring those struggles and those hurts. And I, I'm much more sensitive and aware of the depth of what's going on in those homes and situations.
0: Yeah. Uh, well said. I think that's one of the dilemmas in Christian leadership. I usually come up against you know different walls when I'm talking to leaders. And one of them is certainly relatability, right? It because A leader's heart is very similar. Maybe it's very similar to the abuser's heart. Maybe he's been tempted in very similar ways. Whether that is being abusive in his own home or perhaps his leadership style is a bully. And for some reason, we've allowed that in the church, right? Where we've seen, we've mirrored the world's leadership rather than Christ's leadership. So that relatability is a piece. Another piece is is naivete. I've seen many leaders who've not been exposed to the problem and so, and, and honestly, I know some folks don't like to hear this because they don't think leaders could live their life and not be exposed to this, but it's true. I've, I've worked with pastoral leaders in their fifties and sixties, and they've never encountered abuse. It's like I took a new concept to them that they can't wrap their head around it and they're making assumptions. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, then maybe the, the last one is more of an indifference and ignorance. I, willful ignorance. I really don't want to deal with things. And those are three, of course, then there's the blatant, you know, misogyny piece, but those are kind of the three big walls that I face with leaders, you know, the relatability, the naivete, and then the willful ignorance. And education, like you say, can only go so far until you can get down and dirty and and experience this. And this is one of the things, again, I'll, I'll transition out. For pastors, one of the big big helps, unfortunately, has been when one of their children experiences domestic abuse. I've seen pastors turn on a dime when their daughter, for instance, and then it becomes real, right? And I would much rather it become real through education than real through experience, right? So we could be more preventative. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about, we've been talking about leaders, and I think this is a great conversation and I work a lot with churches denominations ministries what are some what are some ways practical ways maybe that we can help the church prioritize victim safety Uh, you work a lot with victims and I think what we've seen is marriage focused solutions or solutions that are more dangerous what are some maybe some practical steps we can take as churches to prioritize victim safety?
1: That's great, Chris. So the first thing we always do is pray, right? I I just did a a retreat for some women a while back and and in between each step we pray. Um, And and then the other thing is we make it a common uh, part of our conversations. I think that we need to normalize our conversations with each other Um, whether it's women just speaking in their Bible studies. And, you know, it's interesting. I was looking at Titus chapter two about, we always take that women teaching the younger women. But when I look at that, who taught the older women? Paul told Titus to teach the older women. And so a pastor has a role too. And and that in um, making this just something normal that comes from the pulpit, something normal that happens in our small groups. That when we hear or see uh, this power and control happening, when we are aware of what's going on, we start to address it and we make it a place for women to find help and to go and ask. I don't know if that's what you're thinking. As no, that's as good. Tactical.
0: That's good. And I think it goes back to that vulnerability piece. I mean, if a church leader I recently had a a leader say something to me to the effect of, well, I can't really be an expert on this, right? And I'm like, no, you don't have to be an expert on domestic Mm -hmm. abuse, but you have to be aware, right? You can't just say, well, because I'm not an expert, I can't intervene. No, you still have a role to play and you have to play it well, right? And just because you don't feel comfortable here doesn't mean that you get to absolve yourself from being involved in it. I think that's another step for leaders to say, this is uncomfortable. You probably will be out of your wheelhouse, but it's important that you play proper roles. What might be, as an advocate speaking, Sydney, what might be some roles that pastors can play right now in intervention if they're partnering with you or even if you what you think they might be doing if they're partnering with me?
1: Absolutely. Well, when they... See when they hear, if they have an idea that something's going on, as we've been saying along, they need to be a safe place and they need to be a place where women can go. Um, Normally, well, I guess women disclose to pastors, don't they? I mean, that is a very normal place for women to go when they need help and to understand that a woman is not going to share the whole of the situation. Number one, she doesn't always understand what's going on. Um, number two, she's not sure who to trust and if she can trust him. So he needs to keep it under his hat. He needs to keep it quiet and he needs to follow her lead. And the victim needs to be able to say what feels safe and what doesn't feel safe, because you and I both know, no two situations are the same. So she, as a pastor, when this is any kind of discomfort or threat of safety is disclosed, There's a need to to put up your antenna to start asking good questions. Um, But most of all, to follow her lead, to involve another woman. That's the next thing you do is you make this a community project. So whether I'm counseling or whether I'm doing advocacy work, we always pull in the church and not everybody needs to know. But if I have one or two women who are a safe place, who have um, potential to provide resources, whether it's a safe home or a place to store things or the ability to provide transportation or child services, we're coming around her and we're coming alongside her, whether her husband knows or not, he does not need to be privy to what's happening. That's the other part of this is we keep it quiet until we're ready to, in Wyoming terms, we're ready to lock and load, right? Right, yeah.
0: (laughs) Saddle up. We protect her. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's so good. And and pastors, if you are listening in, I think for me, one of the great tensions in this work, I don't know if you've experienced it, Sydney, trying to do the balancing act of being part of the secular work, get Mm -hmm. good, solid training, and then also work with the church is just this tremendous distrust. And I think one of the things that my secular friends miss is they want pastors to refer and to refer quickly and and to get away. They don't want pastors involved at all. And I think part of that's because we've done such a poor job in the past. Mm -hmm. But to your point, we have have things that the secular environment can never provide. We have natural community. We have natural accountability. We have uh, intervening forces. We have support structures in place that the, the world just can't compete with. So pastors, if you're listening, you can play a key role in this. One of the big mistakes we make is we either become the Lone Ranger, we come in, you know, rescue mode, and we try to do everything on our own. Please don't do that. Get help. Or we refer out and we have nothing to do with it. Please don't do that. Be part of the team. And what Sydney's laid out is that your church probably has a natural team structure that can help you play an apostolic role, kind of an oversight role, to get uh, victims the help that they need to respect them, to provide for their safety and sanity. And then when she's ready, provide proper accountability, structures, boundaries, and systems to hold the perpetrator accountable. So I think that is an excellent reminder for pastors. So as we're we're winding down or getting ready to land the plane, Sydney, as I look at the time, what are some, uh, maybe some final words or thoughts uh, for the audience about this work of blending domestic abuse intervention and, and church-based response responses. Do you have any final words for the audience?
1: Well, we need each other, Chris, you know, Christ has given us each other. He's given us himself. And when we go to the foot of the cross together, you know, we find that grace and that help in time of need. Um, We want to be wise. We want to ask for wisdom. James 1, 5 says that God promises to give it. And um, if we are walking like Christ and listening like Christ, we will see the need. And the earlier we catch this, the more hope there is of restoring relationships with God and perhaps with each other, although we have to make sure that's not our goal. That doesn't become the idol. Um, But God will use us if we are available and listening and approachable.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for helping us think through some of these things today, Sydney. Thanks everybody uh, for listening to the podcast today. Hey, what I'd like to do, I'm still recording